Good morning. I'd be all right if we just kept on singing. Beautiful and edifying song service this morning. It's wonderful to be together in this warm building and worship God. If you would, mark your songbooks to number 856 for the song of invitation. Number 856. Throughout the scriptures, we read of Satan's devices, the way that Satan tries to get an advantage on us. And guilt is one of those devices. It's something that can be very powerful. It can control us, dictating how we live our lives. It can bring us to our knees and make us sick to our stomachs. If not dealt with, it can cause self-doubt, lead to depression, and cause us to question our salvation. This morning we serve a God who doesn't want us to be burdened by anything. He's commanded us to bring our cares to him and cast them upon him because he cares for us. And we can find the answers in his word. Like all emotions, there's a godly way to handle them and an ungodly way. And we'll see with guilt, there's a type of guilt that we as Christians should have. And there's another type of guilt that we need to try to overcome. And it's my prayer that I can present God's word clearly as we study together this morning. A good guilt is one that motivates us. Get us, gets us pointed in the right direction, keep us, keeps us walking the path that God has laid out for us. This guilt is a result of our conscience and recognition of sin. As Christians, we strive to hold to God's standard, so we recognize when we fall short. We recognize when we commit sin. When this happens, our conscience speaks to us and creates guilt. We understand that what we've done is a violation of God's law, and we find ourselves guilty. We can find reference to this in Romans 2, verses 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things which are in the law, these all, though not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing them or else excusing them. As we study the New Testament and learn God's law, it's written on our hearts. We take it with us wherever we go. 2 Corinthians 3 refers to having a law not written with ink on stone, but that the Spirit of God writes on the fleshly tables of our heart. And we see in Romans, it's our conscience that keeps us accountable. Our conscience speaks to us and accuses us of doing something wrong, contrary to the law written on our hearts. So it's this positive guilt that pricks our hearts, that leads us to seek forgiveness. And the first step in that is confession. We can see what David said regarding his sin in Psalms 32, verses 3 through 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night, your hand were heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. We see when David kept silent, when he refused to acknowledge his sin, he was dying inside. But we see a stark contract as we continue reading in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So it's the weight of guilt, the weight of knowing that we have fallen short that leads to confession. We see that this weight was lifted when David chose to acknowledge his sin and confess it to God. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, we know that he is faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us, to lift that weight from us, and we can move on to repentance. 
repenting of our past life, not continuing to live in those things. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul says there's a kind of sorrow or a kind of guilt that leads to repentance unto salvation. A kind of guilt or accusation that we can make against ourselves that causes us to do the right thing, to, bring our ba- to repent and bring our life back in accordance with God's will. Not continuing down the same path. And that's crucial when it comes to repentance. That we're not just sorry for what we've done or remorseful for what's happened, but that we replace that sin, we replace that bad habit with something that glorifies God. So this is a good form of guilt, one that we as Christians should have. And not so much a guilt that drags us down, but that we have conviction. Convicted toward, conviction towards God and his will in our lives. Convicted by God's word when we fail him, pricked in our hearts. We understand that we are guilty of sin, leading us to repentance and a return to his will. I'd like to spend the rest of the morning looking at the bad type of guilt, the negative guilt that we need to try to overcome. The kind of guilt that Satan piles on us to weigh us down and take us out of the fight. Even though, even though we're no longer living in sin and we've repented and confessed of those things, but we continue to look back at our mistakes, mistakes that we made months or even years ago. To look back at the things we've done or the things that we have failed to do and question ourselves, question our value. When we stand up in the pulpit to teach, when we set out to study with someone else, when we're looking for a spouse, when we're trying to serve God, guilt whispers in our ear saying, what makes you think you were worthy? What makes you think you're qualified? Look at all the mistakes you've made, keeping us in constant turmoil. The kind of guilt that causes us to question our salvation, that we're so accused by Satan that we doubt that we are saved, that we look at all we have done and ask, how could God forgive me? robbing us of the peace and joy of serving him, rendering us useless in the furtherance of his kingdom. But again, we can find his word. We all have a past. We can look back at our lives and see things that we regret, things that we aren't proud of. But we need to leave the past in the past where it belongs. Luke 9 verse 62 says, But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. When we set out to do God's work, putting our hand to the plow, we need to not look back. We are not fit for the kingdom of God if we are constantly looking back over our shoulders at our mistakes. I remember growing up driving a tractor when I was younger, and this was before the days of GPS, where today we have guidance systems or GPS that will basically drive the tractor for you. But growing up, when I'd do plowing for Dad, I'd have to drive by line of sight, and I'd find myself constantly looking back looking over my shoulder. I'd be looking back to make sure I was getting all the weeds or trying to use the edge of the plow behind me to see if I was plowing straight or not. But when I'd look up, I'd see I wasn't plowing straight. I was off the row. Same goes if we're driving down the highway at 75 miles an hour and we decide to look in the back seat or look out the back windshield. If we do this for too long, when we look up, we'll find ourselves veering out of our lane because we weren't looking ahead, staying focused on the road in front of us, putting our lives in danger. It's the same in our spiritual life. If we are constantly looking back, we are missing what's ahead of us, missing the opportunities to do good in our future. We are not growing spiritually because we are always looking behind us, 
We are not working to be the best spouse we can be, the best parent, a better brother and sister in Christ, a better servant of God's. Instead of being spiritually strong and helping others, we are the weak ones that need tending to. Instead, we need to stay focused on Jesus and stay focused on our futures. I can't make this point without mentioning Peter. As Peter set out to walk on the water to go to Jesus, he was able to do so as long as he stayed focused on Jesus. But as he became distracted by the waves and the storm around him, he began to sink. We must focus on Jesus, focus on heaven, remembering our ultimate goal of spending an eternity with him. Lot's wife is someone who couldn't leave the past in the past. Because of Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness, God was going to destroy it. We see from scriptures that Abraham pleaded with God to have mercy on Lot and his family. And we see that that mercy was granted. But he commanded them that as they fled, they were to not look back. And we know that Lot's wife disobeyed that and she perished because of it. I would venture to say that Lot and his family's futures were much brighter. God had just saved them and delivered them, delivered them from this wicked place, and then better days were ahead of them. When God delivers us, when we saved and we repent, better days are ahead of us. We can keep the past in the past by reaching to the future. Ephesians 4, verse 22 through 24 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which, is, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. As we've mentioned, it's not enough just to put off the old man, but we have to replace it with the new man, replace it with what, with what glorifies God, growing spiritually Every, every day, looking for ways that we can be a better spouse, a better parent, and a better servant of his. If anyone was going to live a tortured existence due to the weight of guilt, it would have been Paul. Acts 9 verse 1 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders. We know that Paul, formerly Saul, stood and watched as Stephen was stoned. Before he was converted, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. I would bet that as after Paul, Saul was converted and Paul went about preaching the gospel that he encountered people that he'd once persecuted, friends of Stephen, families that had been negatively impacted by his former life. So we know that Paul had a past he had to deal with, and in order to do so, he had to make real change in his life. As Ephesians 4 commands, putting off his former conduct, being renewed to a life in service of God. When we repent, we need to make real change in our life. If we turn from sin, but continue to remain stagnant in our Christian life, not growing spiritually, continuing to look back on our past sins and the pleasures of those sins, we put ourselves at great risk of returning to those things. Philippians 3, verse 13 through 14 reads, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching towards forward to those things which are ahead. I press forward to the goal and the prize of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. First, set, Paul says, Paul writing here says, I'm forgetting those things which are behind. And you ask, how do we forget? Can any of us truly forget our past so much that it never crosses our mind again? But as we continue study, studying, we see that that word forget here means not to dwell on. So Paul says, I choose not to dwell on my past. And we need to make that same choice today. Choosing 
not to press rewind. And we play those things over and over again in our mind, continuing to beat ourselves over the head with those things. That we choose to set our mind on something else, intentionally deciding to shut those things off. And we see that that's the future. What we need to focus on is the future. Paul says, reaching forth to those things which are before, always striving for our eternal home. And we can see that Paul's past did not hinder him in his walk with Christ. We know in our current studies in the book of Acts that Paul was a huge asset in God's kingdom, very influential in the early spread of the gospel. He learned from his mistakes as well as used his past to teach others. Paul writing in Galatians 1 verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. We find Paul writing to the church of Galatia, trying to turn them from the Jewish influence. And he says, you remember what kind of Jew I was, how I went about persecuting and killing, trying to destroy the church. Multiple times in Acts, Paul recounts his past. He talked about who he used to be in order to teach others. This caused me to think of several evangelists we have in the church of Christ. Men that didn't grow up in the church or men that did, but left to pursue a world of sin. And after they realized the errors of their way, they returned. And these men stand up in the pulpit and share their stories. They talk about their past and the mistakes they made. They don't do this to belittle themselves or draw attention to themselves, but they do it in hopes that they can save someone else from making the same mistakes they have so that we can learn from them. And we need to have this same attitude. Not that we have to stand up in the pulpit to do so, but that we are willing to share our past with one another. As we saw early on in Psalms, the only way that David was able to feel release and freedom from the things that he had done was by confessing. In James 5:16, we are commanded to confess our faults one to another. And this is one way that we can fulfill that commandment. That we love each other enough to lay aside our pride and be vulnerable. And I know it's not something that's easy to do. Much easier said than done. It's against our nature. We prefer to keep those things to ourselves. We don't want to share our shame. But by doing so, we have a wonderful opportunity to help someone else and save someone else's soul. And I hope we will take the same attitude when it comes to our families and our children, that we don't try to put on a facade of perfectness. Paul didn't act like he didn't have a past. We should be willing to be open and honest with our children. I have things in my past that I'm not proud of. I've committed sins that have caused strained relationships, pain, heartache, caused me to experience this weight of guilt. And I know we all have to some extent. But it's my prayer that I have the strength to share these things with my children in hopes that I can save them from experiencing the same sin and painful consequences that I have. Not that they won't have their own sin and temptations, but they shouldn't have to face the same ones I have or at least not face them alone when I have firsthand knowledge that can be to their benefit. Changing our past into an asset of God instead of a device of Satan. Helping us to keep the proper perspective and focus on the future. Also, in order to overcome our guilt, we need to remember who God is and understand his forgiveness. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says... In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Redemption is deliverance on the account of a ransom paid. 
or the action of gaining something in exchange for a payment. It's what's owed, and Christ paid that price with his blood, laying down his life so that we could obtain forgiveness of sins. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember, and I will not remember your sins. As we've mentioned, as humans, we're not really capable of forgetting our mistakes, but God is. He says, I will not remember your sins. I like to think of it as a piece of paper with a list of all my sins on it, a document of my transgressions. And Jesus takes that list and with his blood blots out every single line on that list. He then gives it to God and all God sees is Christ's blood. And that should bring us great comfort. Micah 7 verse 19 says, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast our, all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalms 103 verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God says, I've cap, cast your sins into the depths of the sea, removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west, removing them never to remember them again. But too often, what do we do? What does guilt lead us to do? It leads us to dive into the depths of the sea and bring those things back up, to drive to the east and the west, continuing to put those things in front of us. Why? Why do we continue to do this? We know that God has forgiven us. We seek forgiveness from our brothers and sisters that we have wronged, and we strive to offer that forgiveness as well. But when it comes to guilt, what we struggle with is self-forgiveness that we have some resentment or bitterness towards ourselves and the decisions that we've made that we can't let go of. But self-forgiveness, I submit to you this morning, is a worldly concept, one that we don't find in scriptures. Let's read Romans 5, verses 10 through 11. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. When we sin, we must be reconciled to or restored to God, and that's through the death of Jesus. Reconciliation or atonement is translated restoration to the divine or making at one. Reconciliation is God bringing us back to him. We are reconciled to him, not us to ourselves. And that's because when we commit sin, we commit sin against God. Psalms 51 verse 4 says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. We're all familiar with the sins that David committed. How he committed adultery with Bathsheba and proceeded to lie and murder her husband in order to cover up his sin. And he says here, speaking to God, against you, you only have I sinned. We know that sin is the transgression of God's law. So in other words, David is saying, my sins against others are a violation of God's law. Like David, when we sin, our sin can negatively affect a lot of people around us. It can ruin and strain relationships and cause various consequences. But when we sin, we sin against God. As we have clearly pointed out, we are not the sin bearer. Christ paid the price that was owed with his blood. He died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. 
God is the one has been, that has been wronged. He's the one that's made atonement possible, and he's the one that offers forgiveness. And the idea of self-forgiveness self implies that I have some greatness or righteousness that I myself can forgive myself. Who are we? Who are we to say, my sin's too great, I can't forgive it, after God repeatedly says, your sin is great, but I'm willing to forgive it. I sent my son to die for you because I love you so much. By not accepting his forgiveness or claiming that we can't forgive ourselves, we are telling God that his grace isn't sufficient. That we look at Jesus hanging on the tree with blood pouring from his body, with his flesh laid open, to see a crown of thorn on his head, to see his, the blood pouring from his body, from his, the nails in his hands and his feet, from the open wounds on his back, to see him struggling for breath, dying in agony, and we say, it's not enough. To look at Jesus and say, it's not sufficient. My sin's too great. Sorry, Jesus, my sin is greater than your sacrifice. Sin demands a brutal death, and none of us can read of the agonizing death that Jesus died and say it wasn't enough. His sacrifice is a sufficient payment for our sins, no matter how wicked we think they are. His forgiveness and His grace is perfect and complete. And really, this quest for self-forgiveness is a quest for rest and a clear conscience, and we have that in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justify means to clear from guilt, to be made innocent, to be made righteous in the sight of God. And what did it cause us? Or what did it cost us? It was free, and praise God for that. Something that goes hand in hand with this is humility. And it's important that we have the correct view of God and humility. Because the feelings that guilt, guilt brings, self-contempt, self-condemnation, and so on, might be confused with guilt. That we think as Christians, a low self-image is what God desires for us. But that's exactly what the devil wants us to think. Guilt and the feelings it brings causes us to be self-obsessed. That we are always thinking of ourselves and what we have and haven't done. Keeping our minds endlessly revolving on self. But God wants us to turn our focus outwards, to turn our attention towards Him to, and carrying out His will and serving others. This caused me to think of the song we sing, Lead Me to Calvary. The chorus reads, Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Ammunition that when we experience guilt, that we remember what is done for us. Remember that Christ is the sin bearer, listening to the voice of God's redeeming love. Love so great that he sent his son to die for us. We must always look at ourselves through the lens of Jesus, to see ourselves the way that he sees us. His blood gives us value and makes us righteous. That we continue to look down the road fighting the good fight. Godly humility is recognizing that we have made mistakes. Mistakes that we can't completely forget, but remembering who we are in Christ. Recognizing that we desperately need His help, knowing that it's only through Him that we are made righteous and can accomplish what He has laid out for us. Godly humility is what equips us to stand up in the pulpit, regardless of our past, to stand up in the pulpit with confidence and share His Word, to teach His Word, to go out and study with one another, to spread His gospel. 
It equips us to accept all the blessings made possible in the body of Christ, putting our faith and trust in God and his grace instead of ourselves. I'd like to share an illustration with you this morning, one that I first saw given from this pulpit, and I'm sure a lot of you will remember, but it was very helpful and beneficial to me, and I hope it will be to you as well. In this picture, we have a glass full of ping pong balls. We see that the balls make up the majority of the inside of this vessel. This vessel represents our lives, our lives, and the balls represent our guilt. We see that the majority of this person's life is made up of guilt. Their guilt controls them, dictating how they view themselves, dictating how they live, influencing their relationship with others and their relationship with God. This person is ruled by their guilt. Paul instructs us in Hebrews 12, verse 1, to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That we lay aside the weight that constantly troubles us and look unto Jesus. Just as if any of us set out to run a race, we'd want to be as light as possible, not adding on any extra clutter or weight, focusing on the, finishing, the finish line. Continuing to hold on to our guilt is like running the race with weights around our ankles. When we put our faith and trust in God, we can lay aside our weight, knowing that we are called to glorify Him in everything that we do, to have an identity in Christ. When we do, we do that by following the things that we have looked at this morning, by study and meditation on His Word, prayer, building Christian relationships, serving others, turning our focus outward. Because what would happen if I took a pitcher of water and began to pour it into this glass? We know that the balls would start to overflow over the top as the water took the place of them. God and his will represents the water. And when we pour God into our lives, he takes the place of our guilt. That we are no longer consumed by ourselves and our past, but God in serving him consumes our thoughts and our actions. But too often what do we see happen we see people get right here and they stop. They stop and say, I'm doing all this good. I'm doing all this good for God, trying to serve him, but I still have this guilt. I still feel this weight. And they give up, ending up right back where they started. So read what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 19 through 21. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in those things which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. When we get caught up in our sinful behavior or in guilt, we become slaves to it. Often in this cycle, we know what we are doing is wrong, but we continue to do it, continue to indulge our flesh, making us slaves to sin. But Christ's blood allows us to be set free, changing our lives to serve him. Continuing in verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Do you think of yourself as a slave of God? You know, none of us have experienced slavery. A slave is powerless, subject to their master. A slave never forgets he's a slave, never forgets who he serves. He knows when he wakes up every single morning what he is to do, 
and he knows nothing else. Christianity is a voluntary slavery, but too often we forget that. I know too often I wake up in the morning and don't remember who I serve. I get busy with life, serving various worldly endeavors, and I make it through a big part of my day without thinking about God or devoting any time towards service to Him. We forget this isn't our life to live however we please. We forget that our life is not our own. I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and we need to live that way. And as we do, we continue to pour God into our lives, and He takes the place of our guilt a process that doesn't happen overnight, and it might might be hard for us to see the change as we look at ourselves from day to day. But if we compare ourselves to how we were a month or a year ago, we will see the change. As we continue to pour God into our lives, we start to look like this. As slaves of righteousness, not riding the fence or being a lukewarm Christian, but that we live in holiness and strive to be like Jesus. Living a life redefined by God, then can we have peace. Because this is a person whose life is made up of God. God leads this person. This person's decisions, behaviors, and relationships are led by his word. This person is ruled by God, no longer a slave to guilt. But you notice there's still one ball left. And that's because we will never be perfect. As long as we live in the flesh, we will have struggles and temptations. But when we abide in Christ and in his people, we are better equipped to battle those things. When we are defined by Christ, we can quickly detect when those things hit the surface, when sin or guilt tries to come back into our lives and deal with it in the correct way. Because this one ball, because our temptations don't define us. And just as it would take a lot of balls to displace all this water, it would take a lot of displacement of God in our lives for sin to take root in our lives again. We've talked a lot about Paul this morning and learned from his example. So in closing, I'd like to read what he writes in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Despite Paul's past and his shortcomings, he was able to have peace. He was confident in where his soul would spend eternity, confident in his relationship with God. He says, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He had this peace by not dwelling on his past, by trusting in God and understanding his forgiveness and devoting his life in service to him. And we can have that same peace and confidence this morning. I'd like to offer the Lord's invitation at this time. If you don't have this peace and you are struggling with guilt this morning, the congregation would love to help you. And that's the wonderful thing about the body of Christ. We don't have to face our guilt alone. The congregation would love to help you and pray for you. Or maybe this morning you haven't been washed in the blood of Christ, but you recognize that you have sin in your life. You recognize that you need to be baptized. We'd ask you to come as we stand and sing.